Columbia Technology Ventures presents Biopharma Perspective on Early Venture Investing, featuring panelists Marion Nakata of Johnson & Johnson Innovation, Bob Silverman of Roche, and Steven Weinstein of Novartis Ventures, moderated by CTV's Executive Director Oren Herskowitz, recorded on February 11, 2016, at Columbia University. For more information, visit techventures.columbia.edu. Okay, good. Okay, so Steve Weinstein, I'm a managing director of the Novartis Venture Fund. Um, I'll tell you a little bit about Novartis in a second. Let me just tell you a little bit about me first. Uh, so I graduated from the engineering school just across the way as a mechanical engineer. Uh, I spent my early career as a turnaround CEO of an industrial business. Uh, bought a business out of bankruptcy when I was in my 20s, ran it for a number of years, uh, and then um, after I did that, moved on to business school. Fell into venture in 1999 as part of a program called the Kauffman Fellows Program, where I spent the first two years of my venture career doing early stage software investing, and then didn't become a life science person until 2001 when a couple of folks said, we could teach you this, and I said, okay, sounds fun. So I'm not the traditional path uh, into, into life sciences or into venture. I'm a little bit of a mutt, uh, but I've been faking it for a while, so I guess it's okay. Uh, in 2001, I joined a group in Boston uh, and spent the majority of my time looking at medical devices and probably a third of my time looking at biotech. And then about nine years ago, uh, I joined Novartis to uh, split my time between biotech and medical devices, and that's what I do today. Uh, let me tell you a little bit about Novartis and a little bit about Novartis's fund. Uh, I assume that many of you know about Novartis. We're a big, large pharmaceutical company. We have a couple of them here. Uh, we probably generate about $55, million, $55 billion in revenue. We're global with 130,000 employees. So we're big. Uh, within Novartis is a very small group called the Novartis Venture Fund, which is 10 people globally, half in Boston and half in Basel, Switzerland. Our charge, and it's been our charge since 97, is to serve clinical need and make venture returns. What I didn't say was that we, uh, we align our investments with Novartis strategy. Our charge is to find the best technologies uh, that uh, will help patients and that we can make money at. And we've been doing that since 97 and we've successfully made money since 97 so we get to keep doing it. We have an evergreen pot. Uh, we have a $750 million evergreen fund. Uh, it's a fund that was seeded many, many years ago, and we've never had to go back to the well to ask for more money, which is a good thing. And as we generate returns, we recycle and reinvest. We invest across all stages. We do about 75% of our investments in therapeutic drugs and about 25% of our investments in medical devices and diagnostics and healthcare IT and anything else um, that's related to healthcare. As long as we can help patients and make money, we're charged to do it. We invest across all stages. About 20% of what we do is seed and pure startup. About half of our investments are preclinical or pre-first in man, and the other half a clinical stage. So that's kind of us in a nutshell. Okay, thank you, Bob. Thanks. 
So I'm Bob Silverman. Can you all hear me? Okay, so uh, I'm with Roche, uh, so we are the other Basel company, um, and uh, I am actually located here in New York City. Uh, I'll describe a little bit about Roche first, and then I'll go into um, who I am and then how I fit into Roche. Uh, so Roche, we're also a global um, healthcare company. We have two major operating divisions, the diagnostics division and the pharmaceuticals division. Um, we are about 90,000 employees at Roche globally, um, and the uh, US, our major U.S. headquarters on the pharma side is Genentech in, in uh, San Francisco, so most of you might know our company, or some of you might know our company as Genentech, actually, in the U.S. Um, and, uh, and then in between all that, we have various corporate functions, uh, like um, human, re human resources and treasury and the like, that sits kind of in between the divisions. Um, we are we are a um, only work on kind of innovation, if you will. So we don't have a generics division. We don't have consumer products division. We don't have lots of other divisions that some of our other more diversified colleagues have. Um, we only focus on uh, really you know trying to create products based upon breakthrough sciences in pharmaceuticals and diagnostics. That's what we do. Um, we're the leader in oncology. We're the leader in in vitro diagnostics. Um, leader in hospital care products, and so you know you would might, you might look at us from the outside in as kind of a specialty care company is is where we focus our energy. Um, within Roche, um, I sit in the pharmaceutical division, and specifically within the business development function for the pharmaceutical division, which we call Roche Partnering. Okay, so I'll describe a little bit about my career arc, and then I'll come back to a little bit further how I fit in. Um, so my career arc, I, um, my scientific background is in chemistry. I went to undergraduate school and studied chemistry in undergraduate school. Realized pretty early on I wasn't very good at it. So, uh, <laughs> so I thought, what am I going to do with this? Um, but actually, like, I, I, enjoyed, I enjoyed learning about the disciplines and learning a little bit about a lot of different things. And so um, the, the, the career path that took me was actually into becoming a patent attorney. And that's how I started out my career. I actually um, started out as a patent attorney with a firm here in New York City, Roche with a client, and then um, after a couple of years practicing it privately, I moved into Roche and uh, started working there in the patent department. Which, which firm? Penny and Edmonds in New York City, which is amazingly defunct now for a few years, but at the point in time, it seemed it was impossible that could ever happen. <laughs> um, so, um, so I joined Roche, and then within Roche, this was in the mid-90s, I, I actually saw a trend that was happening, um, and it was at the very beginning of a trend, which was that I, I just noticed that we were beginning to really bring a lot of technologies in from the outside. Most of, mostly at that point in time was actually into our labs, technologies and tools into our labs. But I, I, I identified a trend and uh, thought that I could help. And um, as I described my career path a little bit more, one thing that I've tried to, um, you know, tried to do is be pretty flexible about what I'm seeing and then try to propel myself to, to, to orient and volunteer to work on projects which then lead me to, leads me to the next thing eventually. Um, so, I just kind of threw my hand up and said, hey, I want to work on deals from a, from a legal perspective. I want to work on these licensing deals. So I started doing that, and I did that for a couple of years. And then, uh, just a uh, nice coincidence, in 2001, we created a department, which today we call Roche Partnering. It was really the first integrated business development uh, team that we had at Roche. At that point, it was about 60 or so professionals, and I, I volunteered, put my hand up, and said, I would like to be a dedicated attorney for this department. We created a, um, a department, so I helped found that, and then a couple years later, I moved over into the business development proper, began negotiating transactions for Roche, mostly very complex intellectual property transactions. 
When I was doing that, I saw another trend I noticed. So I noticed that most of the, de most of the deals and companies we were working with were privately backed venture held companies. And in fact, the venture capitalists were making the decisions. So even though we were negotiating with the management, management wasn't making the decisions. The, the VCs, who were actually investors, were making the decisions. So again, I put my hand up and I said, well, I think I want to learn about the venture capital industry. Um, we uh, actually created a position and I worked uh, part-time with Pappas Ventures in North Carolina while I was working full-time at Roche. Um, so that's how I began to learn about the venture capital industry. Um, and um, I did that for a few, couple of years uh, and then I kind of took a time out and went over into an M&A team. And then in 2012, um, we uh, shifted some things around in the partnering department and uh, I, I was kind of half-assed, half-volunteered. Um, to, figure out something to do, figure out something to do with venture capital that's different from a business development perspective. And so that was my, that's, that's where I am today actually. Um, today I actually, um, my role is called Head of External Drug Discovery for Partnering. We've created an initiative which is essentially working together with the venture capital community to identify novel biology that can be developed by drug hunters, industry experienced drug hunters outside of our walls and then we support that. Um, and uh, hopefully take some options. So it's, I'm in a business development function, but working very closely with the venture capital community. So that's been kind of how I've marked myself is, you know, volunteer and, and um, find your way towards different trends that you're seeing. Um, and, uh, you know, in terms of Roche, I, I mentioned it's a 90,000 person company, but actually in order to succeed in a company of this size, and I don't know if it's the same in Novartis or JJ, I assume it is, at some level you have to keep the different projects and initiatives small and, and create an accountability for people. So although, so our entire company, I work with in, in early stage um, business development, doing very early stage business development, there's only seven of us in the entire company. I, I'm, I'm one of the seven, so, okay, so that's me. That's great. I just want to pause for a second. Is, this, is it this mic that's causing the echo? Do we know? Yeah, because you have two mics on each person. Yeah, yeah. Uh, can we just try speaking up and not using that mic to sure. see how it goes? Sure. Let's try that. Okay. Because the echo is is, is hard. I can okay. I can hear it too yeah. a little bit. Can, so let's try let's try talking loudly. You get to be the lucky one. I'm the okay. lucky one. <laughs> Hi, I'm Mary Nakata, and I'm with uh, Johnson <laughs> Johnson Innovation. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, JJDC. So we uh, we are the corporate venture arm for Johnson and Johnson. Uh, I started my career. Um, uh, well, I started in school majoring in biology and got a PhD uh, in pharmacology, and then started uh, at Senecor, which was then a large, a medium-sized biotech. Let's say in the days before antibodies were believed to be viable therapeutics. Uh, and so did, was in discovery for uh, 10 years before Johnson & Johnson acquired us, and then had differing roles, different therapeutic areas, went into leadership positions within R&D, and as we were looking to in-license or even acquire assets, companies, I played a lead role in the diligence, which is digging into the data and seeing if this is real and how you risk adjust the, the deal terms, et cetera, based on the science. So being in the te that technical role had a lot of interaction with the business development folks. So after many, many diligences, many, many trips together, dinners out, et cetera, you sort of became part of that family. And when somebody uh, 
retired from the business development team, they highly encouraged me to apply for that role. And I have never, I never had an MBA or anything, but I was interested and intrigued in the, in the business side of that. And so I uh, went into a technology licensing role and was in business development for some years. Uh, and this is more as much about raising your hand as a bit about adjacencies, the people you know, uh, people willing to teach you new things, which I think is important. So as I did a number of deals, some of them had equity components to them. So we would do a license plus uh, an investment. And so I got to know the JJDC folks who were, it's our, that's a Johnson & Johnson Development Corp is the initials. And in addition, when they had investments, opportunities that they thought we would invest in, they would come to me for technical input for and strategic fit for some different investments. So I, I had visibility to that team. So when these innovation centers that I'm now part of opened three years ago, they were looking to reorganize and recruit some new folks into the corporate venture arm. And so the adjacency happened again. Uh, again, one of those things, again, I'm not, a, I didn't grow up as a venture capitalist. I think very few people who are in venture do. Actually, very few you know, five-year-olds say, I want to be a VC. Uh, but that being said, I, I made the leap, moved to, to Cambridge, Massachusetts. The majority of my career was actually in the Pennsylvania area <coughs> since uh, Senecor and Janssen R&D are located there. So I've been in Cambridge now uh, doing equity investments. We invest in all stages from seed to series A, B, C, D in companies. Some of those are pure equity investments, in which case, uh, for those of you who don't know, we don't have any strategic rights, meaning we don't have any direct ability to bring those drugs into the company unless we do a business development transaction. In others, it's a blended scenario where we have an investment and, and strategic collaboration. Uh, we invest differently from, from Steve in the sense that we are very strategic, which means that our intent is to onboard the company or the drugs of interest for that company. That is our ultimate goal. So we're looking to fill and expand our pipeline within the areas of interest for Janssen R&D. Uh, and those you can find uh, online. We can discuss that more later. But there are very specific areas that we're interested in. Uh, that being said, uh, JJDC supports, I, I talk a lot about farm, and I do the farm investing from Boston. We have regional innovation centers, uh, also in California, London, and Shanghai. But JJDC is, is uh, placed within these innovation centers, and I could talk maybe at another time about who else is in those centers with us to identify, transact, and manage collaborations to, to, to uh, access external innovation. JJDC has a very broad role. We invest in all three sectors. So Johnson & Johnson is a very broad, big, global healthcare company that has three sectors, pharma, devices, and consumer. And so we have different investors that specialize in those, uh, different, uh, in, in those different sectors. Uh, so that's, uh, I guess, that's my story. So it's interesting listening to, uh, to you folks <laughs> talk about the different models not only the, all the different models that exist, but also, Bob, to your point, that the, it seems like the different models of finding early stage innovation uh, wax and wane over time. And certain models might emerge and then, and then take a, more of a backseat. Um, 
you know, for those of us who are on the uh, academic side, uh, this has been a great ride over the last <laughs> five years. I remember when, when I first joined Columbia 10 years ago, what people were talking about was that early stage biopharma investing was dead. Um, that when people were talking about early stage, increasingly you'd have these conversations about we're an early stage investor or we're looking for early stage assets. And what that meant was something in phase two. Um, you know, it wasn't the kind of early stage we see here in universities. Um, over the last three or four years in particular, it has been an amazing ride to see all the money that is coming into the space in so many different ways. So we see uh, pharma companies, in addition to their own in-house R&D, obviously, which still does continue, increasingly experimenting with, um, with, with their own venture arms, uh, with being LPs in other venture funds, um, in setting up the built so-called build-to-buy relationships where they're an investor but with very clear rights to acquire the assets, doing later stage um, acquisitions. So looking ahead, and actually if we'd had this panel two months ago, this might have been a very different discussion. <laughs> um, looking ahead now with the turbulence in the market, where do you see this all playing out in the years ahead? What do you, like five years from now, are these all still gonna be prevalent business models? Uh, are you guys still gonna be uh, looking at this the same way as you are now? Anybody? Good. Yeah, I, I think the answer is yes. Um, you know, if you look at it simply, uh, pharmaceutical companies recognize they're not gonna invent everything. And so then there's a question of how do you engage the external community, because they're always gonna need the breakthrough science, it's not always gonna be invented internally, and they, they need it for their growth. So there's gonna be a spectrum from a handshake to a hug. And you know, every step along the way, they're gonna to wanna to have points of engagement. Handshake maybe get to know you, you know, a hug may be an option to buy, you know, a bill to buy. And, and, but I don't think the desire to, to find new compounds or new programs is ever gonna end because I, I think the pharma industry recognizes that it's half of you know, the industry's R&D. Yeah. And, and I think the potential of technologies that are, that are evolving today is unprecedented. Yes, um, the so biology is just stunning. The biology is, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. The biology is breaking, the application of genomics into the business model, the application of, of even things that are not biology, but just different tools that we can use right. Big to data. measure things, data, right. optics. Right. I mean, right. you know, Sensor technology, yeah, right. so, diagnostics, so all that. All of, all of which begin to go outside really the spectrum of what pharmaceutical companies are experts right. at, but still need to integrate somehow. Um, so I, I think that the, um, I, I really think it's an unprecedented time in, in the industry and in science to, to you know, merge all these different disciplines and, and um, the business models are not always clear how to do it. So uh, I think that uh, what makes companies like J&J &J and Novartis and Roche really great to work with is generally we're open to experiment with new business models. Yep. And we're gonna constantly try to evolve and tinker those business models in terms of how we interface, which in some senses, like with my group, is gonna be direct through VCs but I think also there's, uh, I think we're all trying to struggle, how do we also create an efficient model to interface directly with the academic community as well? Yeah, right. and I think the other thing is, I think there's a huge need to leverage external capital to fuel that novel yes. science, and it's partly because the cost to pharma 
to put all of these success, hopefully successful drugs through full development is enormous. So as you're look, if you if you think about a single drug, because it can in the let's say in the oncology space now could be a huge, uh, hugely successful. Let's say four different tumor types. You're doing that could be a billion dollars in development cost for a single drug, and so that is the kind of that's the use of our capital to be able to bring those things to market. But we can't be then deploying the capital to be doing the basic science of the what's next, the what's next. And that's why I think the notion of using venture and other dollars to help de-risk these things and do that kind of basic science is going to become more and more important. You know, our business models are different, but our objectives are exactly the same. And I know that sounds silly. You know, I said to you that we invest purely for financial return, and we do. Our investment thesis has to be 100% financial. Now, if you ask my CFO, who's our boss, we report up to the CFO, does he want a strategic benefit? Of course he does, right? I mean, he wants, so once we're invested, we absolutely advocate internally and hope good things happen. It's just never part of our investment thesis. Right? So you know, every, you know, all these companies want a lens into what's going on outside their walls. They want to have capital leverage outside their walls. And they want to have, you know, to build these relationships so that they can you know, have, you know, uh, you know, have a better shot of maybe internalizing them. But they all do it slightly differently. But your billion dollar analysis is a great one because you know, we could fund $100 million of it. And actually, we've done an analysis of our, of our portfolio. And if you look at our portfolio and you look at how many compounds we have in phase one and how many compounds we have in phase two and how many compounds we have in phase three, we have a mid-sized pharma company inside our venture portfolio. Right? That, or mid-sized biotech probably more than pharma, right? But, um, that type of leverage is pretty stunning, but we get to do it on one tenth or you know fifteen percent of the capital that you would see otherwise. So aside from the financial aspect, I mean that's really interesting. So it, it sounds like part of this is about uh, getting some leverage on the firm's internal capital. Yeah. So about being yes. able to develop increasingly more expensive projects without having to take on all of the risk. Exactly. Yes. Um, are there things beyond the financial that might lead you down one path or another? So if if I know it's very naive for us to think of Novartis or Roche or J&J as one entity. Um, but if there is a promising opportunity that comes to the firm, how does it end up on one track or another? One track being? Uh, either an in-license or a straight exactly. acquisition, mm -hmm. or we're going to put a little bit of money in and keep right. an eye on it, or, or we're going to build a bill to buy or put some money in with the rights. Like, how do you decide? So I can start. Yeah, so, so it's a very complicated question, actually, <laughs> um, and there's a lot of dimensions to that question. So also, we also have a venture arm in Roche, and much like the Novartis venture arm, it's actually an independent group in a yeah. way. So, so the only mandate of that venture group is to invest into things that are either diagnostics or pharmaceuticals. Right. And that group has its own deal flow, just like you do, have right. your own deal flow. There's really no connectivity, if you will, to the business development group, other than we might say, hey, I saw a good idea, but I can't, I'm, I can't do it for whatever reason. Maybe you're interested, and sometimes we get them back, back in reverse. I'm in the business development group, so on my side, we're very tightly wound into the R&D strategy. So my group is trying to mm -hmm. tap into areas of novel biology that we actually don't have for either reasons of critical mass or just because the biology is so new that we're just not 100% sure that that's what we want to apply 10 scientists to today. Um, so but that, that's what we look for, and, and we go out and find it in my shop because it's through a proactive search really driven by our strategy and then we you know understand who's working in the spaces we're looking for so for example in anti-infectives 
Then we segment out antibacterials, HBV, influenza. Now we go over to anti-infectives. We say, okay, we want to play in gram negatives. Within gram negatives, we divide that into three. And we say, okay, um, there, there are kind of three basic approaches. There's either pathogen specific, there's um, you know, trying to overcome beta-lactam resistance, or there's this new space that we think is really interesting, which is about kind of working on pet host pathogen and um, different, different mm -hmm. almost like immunology yeah. mechanisms against antibacterials. We don't know how to do that ourselves. We don't have the internal know-how, but actually we want to go out and find and work with groups that do. And so that will come into my shop to work on, and then we'll go out and find it. How do I find it? I actually work with the VCs to try to hunt those down. But you know your strategy. You know we your are areas so of need. so tight to strategy. Yeah, right. yeah, yeah. Right. And so that's how we do it. And if it doesn't fit strategy, then we then, you, then, we you're, then you're say off. thank you, but no, no, thank you. And even so if it's a great, even, even if, if it's, it's a great, great idea for, for me, yeah. No, we might ship that over to if I see something that I know it looks kind of cool. The I might ship it over to the VC guys, yeah. right? right. Right. And we would take the opposite, right. which would be, you know, really interesting, right? If it if it changes medical practice and we can make money at it, great. Then we might fund it on our own. But if it if it might fit, you know, the research interest more, and quite frankly, we couldn't. It's not the right scale, or it's not big enough to to venture fund independently. You know, we would push it off to, to never. For us, I think it depends on uh, what we what we want from the company. So let's say it's a platform company, but we're only interested in one target. Then we would do a collaborative deal rather than investment because if I do an investment, I'm not gonna, the R&D folks aren't gonna really, they're, they're gonna have visibility to the company, but they're not necessarily gonna get a drug out of that one target versus the other five targets that the company's working on. So they might do a focused R&D collaboration saying, you know, let's do, um, you know, uh, you know uh, an option, let's do a license, let's do some kind of BD deal. Uh, so that's one. It, it, it depends on what the R&D folks are, are wanting. If, they, if the whole concept is just so risky, as to your point, that they just want to watch it, we might do an investment and then watch it, right? Because we don't necessarily know if it, it's not time yet to put real R&D dollars into that. The other, uh, the other aspect is the competitiveness so, and the risk that, to our franchise of not having that. And in that instance, sometimes it will be an M&A because we look at it and say, if we don't have that company, that asset, um, you know, we will, you know, we'll be second instead of first in this area. Then we will say we just need to take it out because we can't float the risk that we make an investment or we do a deal and then somebody buys the whole shebang. So those those are, I think, risk has a lot to do with our decision. As opposed to say, like a more enabling asset, like something that would that that isn't doesn't create define the competitive space as much, like something that you yeah. don't mind sharing. Right, in which case we might do you know, a license, we might do an investment to watch it exactly. So if, it's less, it's, if there's less of a risk of losing the asset, we might do something, we, we might try and minimize the exposure to the R&D budget by, by using equity or doing something more creative. I guess there's always this question, does strategy drive opportunity or does opportunity drive strategy? Yes. Yeah. Well, yeah. and, and yeah. you know, on the if you're on the investing side, you know, companies only get bought for one of two reasons: fear or greed. Uh, and if you have fear, right? Fear usually pays more than greed. Exactly. Uh, and, and greed, but greed there's is a bonus. Twitter, uh, there's your tweet, folks. <laughs> but you know, it's true. Yeah. Actually, so speaking of uh, speaking of the money side of the equation. Um, we were, it's obviously, it's been a great run, both on the, uh, up until the last couple of months, it had been a great run in the public markets, it had been a great run for raising funds, um, uh, and, but people were very concerned that we were in a bubble, 
and what it meant to be in a bubble and whether that created opportunities or destroyed opportunities. Now that we have had a bumpy last couple of months, it seems like everyone's worried about exactly the opposite, that uh, everything's falling apart, the sky is falling, and does this create opportunities or destroy opportunities? So it's sort of a unique window right now of saying, uh, how, how do the big firms look at this? Is this a great time for you, a scary time for you? Um, as a, and you all have different, slightly different perspectives on what you're looking for, so. Well, I think from a venture perspective, um, it's mixed, because it is scary in the sense that companies that you have in your portfolio that you would like to exit, or you would want crossovers and going to IPO and having some sort of liquidity, uh, there is less of a probability of that happening. Uh, so that, and, but by the same token, if you're looking to do new investments, it might help to even out and make more realistic valuations that haven't been as realistic uh, in the past year. So that's that's one of the that's an, an advantage. I think another uh, point is uh, from a non-venture perspective, it uh, we do a lot of BD deals, uh, acquisitions, licenses, etc. Those valuations also maybe become real, more realistic because it wasn't just um, the company valuations in terms of the IPOs, but in terms of some of the BD deals. When you look at these numbers, you say, wow, how, how are these guys commanding that? And I think there's going to be a readjusting of that also. But the good news is there's still capital and t really large funds, many of them have been raised and they are going to be deployed over the next few years. That's irrespective of the markets and IPOs, stock market, et cetera. So I think there's still going to be continued investments in companies that I think are of high quality. So from our perspective, I, I agree there's a lot of money in the system right now, and it's, it's going to get deployed. And um, I think that the, the, the firms that are really great venture-creating firms who have that capital are really not looking at the markets today. They're, 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 it's a five-year, it's a seven-year, yeah. it's a ten-year project. So what happened in the last two months is pretty irrelevant, actually, for those mm -hmm. firms who are have wanted to deploy and their businesses creating new new companies, uh, new enterprises. Um, you know, from the Roche perspective, we are not going to go on a buying speed because the market dropped a little bit. It's just right. not going to happen. Right. So um, we're you know we're science first company. Um, we're very strategic about what science we want to engage into. And for us, the challenge is always integrating projects into our system yeah. and making sure that we actually can, you know, we can actually do a great job with these projects. That's what takes our time and our energy in terms of the discussion. So the fact that there's been this blip, irrelevant for us. Yeah, I think from a Novartis point of view, it's probably irrelevant from a research point of view. I think you know, as an entrepreneur, it might be a little different because the, there's definitely venture money and there's a ton of it out there. Uh, but you know, the public capital availability has enabled a lot of things that wouldn't have been funded 10 years ago. I mean, you know, there's always a discussion around platform versus product and how big a platform you can do. And platforms are enabled by having a lot of capital that you can do lots of programs. And so we may end up, if capital gets a little tighter, or the ability to raise relatively inexpensive public capital diminishes, we may narrow the scope and things may be a little bit more capital efficient and we may end up, you know, the profile of the companies might change a little bit. But I don't think this is going to dramatically change the industry. And, and I agree with you over the next five years, you know, three, we'll say at least three years, because these venture funds are typically three to four yeah. year investment vehicles, um, shouldn't change too much. Do you think that narrowing for the, for the uh, you, would you agree with that? I or totally agree. Do you agree? Yeah. 
What's that? That they might result in a narrowing of the R&D, like a, a narrowing of the risk that the firms may be willing I, to take. I think what you're seeing is you're seeing the big firms are, 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 are putting a lot more money into the companies they create. You know, so you're seeing these $30, $40 million rounds. Mm -hmm. which you, I, I don't recall such a high proliferation of yeah, those types of investments right. five years ago. And, but you see, you, you see it here in New York City. Even. There was a company that was just created right out of the labs for one of the universities. $40, $50 million, I think. That, was, that was actually ours. Yeah. Yeah. And there was, also, okay. actually, there was also Rockefeller and there was also yeah. Cornell. So right, it's, been a big, right. it's been a great year. But I think, I think <laughs> the, the lots of capital, number one, obviously, it's probably significantly tranched. But the good news is it's it's earmarked and dedicated right. for that company, right. and it allows those companies to have pits, fits and starts and pivots if things sort of go sideways. And it allows, I think, science, which is really never linear, to take that progression to, to end up being successful, which I think is important. Um, and again, that's another um, sort of a insurance policy from the, the, choppy, the choppy markets to be able to say that you know, these companies have the ability to, uh, to take the science home. So you, you touched on something there about New York, which I want to come back to, not just New York in particular, but more the, the whether, how important it is to be regional or local. Um, so I know some of, the, some of the large biopharma companies are either experimenting with or firmly committed to the regional innovation center model. Others have not gone down that road. Um, and we see there's a lot of talk about the rise of New York City as a bioscience capital, whereas, you know, that for, especially for startups where that hadn't happened as much before. So I guess, and maybe, Mary, I'll ask you to start if you don't mind. Um, maybe explain what you meant for the audience by that you work out of one of the innovation centers for J&J. &J, and then, uh, you know, how that come about, what's right. the strategy and how's it working? And then I'd love to hear from you guys on, are you also doing the same thing? Yeah. If so, yes. If not, why not? Yeah, so we historically have been, uh, have had our, our transaction folks embedded within R&D in sites, Beersa, Belgium, Springhouse, Pennsylvania, Raritan, um, San Diego, the, the latter doesn't count, but the others are somewhat obscure locations. <laughs> uh, and so we would then, uh, if we were interested in a company, just fly there, talk, fly back home, and go to partnering meetings like Bio or JP Morgan, uh, and hope that things would, we would find these, the deal flow. And we realized that with the need that we had, in accessing external innovation, which basically fuels at literally something like 55% of our, of our current portfolio has been sourced from the outside. And so we know that if we were gonna continue to have a robust pipeline, we needed to do a more effective job of accessing uh, external science. And so there was a heat map created of where are the hot areas of science, and that's where San Diego, Boston, London, and I mean, uh, San Francisco, Boston, London, Shanghai popped up. So we created these regional innovation centers so that all of the folks that are, that, 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 there's only about maybe 25, 30 of us at each of, the, each of these centers, and they're this, it's the same folks in each. There's, or not same, same type of folks in each. So there's folks that are scouting, R&D people who are connecting back to the therapeutic areas. There's transaction folks that do BD, there's venture, there's legal, there's finance, there's project management, there's alliance management, communications, et cetera, so that we're a one-stop shop but we're in Kendall Square, so and then we can travel the whole East Coast 
in, in a day, day with, with day trips to be able to cover that, that region. And so we feel that it's important for us, rather than have innovation find us, we need to be there within these, these ecosystems. And you know, New York is an area that we feel is, you know, is also uh, up and coming and very important, although we we've done a lot of deals in the Cambridge area. We're also LPs in the Accelerator, and uh, we're sponsors of New York Bio last year. So we feel that there are other areas that are that are important, and, and and as a team, you know, we who are in Boston will will cover this geography. Um, sure, I mean, you know, I'm not on the research side of Novartis, uh, so our venture fund is still, you know, is two offices, and you know, from Boston we do fly all over the place, and from Basel they fly all over the place. Now, our research organization has you know, places everywhere. Cambridge is its world headquarters, which people wouldn't necessarily think, given that we're a Basel-based organization. There's obviously a lot of activity in Basel, and we were the first major firm to open up a place in Shanghai. So we, so our research organizations try and find these hubs and try and find the expertise. And I know our licensing guys go all over the place, but we're less integrated in that regard. Uh, but I think the objective is the same, and um, but we, you know, we're less integrated. So uh, from the divisional perspective, we have two operating divisions, the diagnostics division and the pharma division, and they actually operate quite differently from a business mm -hmm. development perspective. On the I'll speak <coughs> to the pharma side. So um, like Novartis, we have a global footprint with our R&D group. Um, we're in Sw Europe, Switzerland. Uh, we're also in Shanghai. We're here in the US, and we're in, in various geographies. Um, that group in 2012, we brought in a new head of R&D, a fellow named John Reed. John Reed came to us from Sanford Burnham, and um, one of John Reed's, what, one of his real core missions was um, how do we create a better uh, profile for our, a sci better scientific profile for Roche, and I'm gonna separate Roche and Genentech for a second. Mm -hmm. How do we create a better scientific profile for Roche, and um, how do we actually do a better job in terms of hunting, especially in the academic community? Um, John has brought into his uh, leadership team a lot of people from the academic community, and those people are expected to have networks. So although we are, you know, uh, those are kind of the head of R&D is all in Basel, Switzerland, the people who work in those all have very deep networks. And that's how we find stuff. Mostly that's how we find stuff is through relationships and networks. And then, of course, we have business developers who are going all over the globe to also hunt and try to bring things in. But I'd say the great majority of things that we actually execute on drive out of the networks we've got. But I wouldn't underestimate, I mean, the ecosystems do matter, right? I mean, Kendall is a, an incredible yeah. ecosystem, and so the productivity yeah. there and the number of things that are happening there are a function yeah. of that. And so, you know, as New York tries to get better and better and develop more of an ecosystem, it's important for New York and the ecosystem because success begets success. You end mm -hmm. up with spin-offs, and you have, and you have right. talent and mentoring and everything else. So if you are doing some breakthrough research and you are outside the mainstream, yeah. it's going to be harder for you. Yeah, yeah I agree. And we have, I mean, people, I, it's, no, and okay. we have people on the ground in Boston also. Yes. Just one comment about New York because we actually set up, we set up a, a, and you live there. an office in New York City, right? Which is unusual that we were actually come, we did it at a point in time where it was unusual to come into New York as a pharmaceutical company. We could have gone to Boston, we could have gone to wherever, North Carolina, Washington, wherever. We came into New York, and one of the key drivers was because from a clinical perspective, and what we do here is fundamentally driving cl translational clinical development, we actually felt that we could uh, tap into a relatively untapped market in terms of the, um, the access to clinical development expertise mm -hmm. in the city and clinical development innovation in the city. So that's what that was. Yeah, it's interesting drivers. to note, too, that, you've, you, that when we've been using the terms sort of Boston, Cambridge, and Kendall Square, 
as if they're interchangeably uh, interchangeable. But when you think about a city like New York, um, this is a, it can take you as long to get from the Upper West Side to the East 30s yes. as it can to get from anywhere in Boston to the suburbs in many ways, or from or here, or, or yeah, or San Francisco down to Palo Alto. Like they're very different places. So there's one of the things that that people talk, say in New York is that there is no equivalent of the Kendall Square. There's nothing where you can just literally walk around. Well, Boston's a town. But that really yeah. doesn't exist in San Francisco either. There's no equivalent of that in San Francisco. No. There's no equivalent of that even in San Diego. I mean, so, there's Sand Hill, yeah, but yeah. There, that's not, there's not, yeah. that's all VC. It's not necessarily yeah. New Co. The, the closest, right. I mean, it's UCSF Mission and, Bay, and yeah. South San Francisco. That's the closest you get. But yeah. what, South San Francisco. Yeah. But what, you know, the city, I think New York City's been really good about trying to create a community. Alexandria's been very good about trying yes. to create a community. So, you know, that's how you go about yeah. it. Uh, you mentioned working with the academics. Um, so self-serving questions since we try to show ideas to you. Um, when you're working with academics, uh, I'm interested in how do you, uh, first of all, where do those networks come from? I think, uh, Bob, you mentioned that, the, you, know, that we, you we hire, hire people, academics. <laughs> you hire the academics, you bring them with them. For academics, who academic researchers who have, who have brilliant ideas or for the tech transfer offices who represent them, um, if, if those relationships don't exist, uh, any best practices you've observed in terms of trying to get those ideas in front of you um, increase the chances that there's a match? I, I think it is about uh, the relationships, the a continued dialogue, uh, making it easy for us to, in other words, for some of them, um, we have, for example, in oncology, we have prostate, we have lung, and we have heme malignancy interest, okay? We're not interested in brain or bladder or ovarian. So some of them will just spoon feed us and give us a spreadsheet that has just the things that are of our area of interest. And that's a wonderful thing, right? And so those kinds of brief summaries, even sometimes like an interaction so that people know, okay, if you want to go to J&J &J and you can go into multiple, if you, and you have interesting platform that can go into different tumor types, you know, do the lung cancer model first. Don't do the pancreatic cancer model. I mean, if you're interested in us. So I, and I think, um, so for example, our folks, we have New Ventures people that scout. They, they know a lot of these either regional or academic tech transfer folks um, and then see them all the time at different, all different kinds of partnering meetings. So I think making life easy for us is, is one way of doing it, getting a sense of what stage we're interested in, um, and, then, and then working with your PIs to make sure that the pitch the, the summary, the stage, the timing is appropriate to approach us. So those are all things that are, I think, very helpful. I would say, in addition to all that, is present at scientific conferences. We are, our scientists are out at conferences listening. So present your, present your work at the, at the various scientific conferences where you think we might be at. And uh, it's simple. Between, uh, in terms of the, the sort of inflow of ideas that come in that actually get adopted, what do you have a sense of most of them coming from uh, either a publication or a scientific conference or a relationship with a faculty member that pre-existed versus something that you get pitched? I mean, 99% uh, of the stuff we do comes through referral yeah. so and, and it's relationships. And quite frankly, if you, you know, everyone knows LinkedIn, if you don't have a relationship, you know somebody who has a relationship. So you, you just have to find your way in, uh, you know, these organizations are small. I mean, we, you know, seven people, you know, 10 people globally, five in the US, and I don't know how big your organization is, and even the licensing side of, of Novartis, really small. 
But you know, we have all the tools now. People can find their way in if they work hard enough. So we have nine uh, investors. That's so it's not a lot uh, for right. three sectors. I mean, one idea would be even just, you know, once you have those relationships, we, we always love like the top tier journals. So if you could give a preprint of something coming out in like yeah. Nature Biotech, we would love that. Yes. Because they're like, we know that everyone's going to be all over that and we'd rather get there first, you know? So again, those are those that that would be that would be a hint in terms of relationships yeah. because um, those are the kinds of like heads up that we would like, especially if we think something's going to be competitive. It's trickier for things that are not, you know, nature biotech and are an idea, you know, that are that is looking for like an application where that's much, much harder for us to engage in those types of things. But um, I mean, most recently we have a company uh, called Navitor that actually pivoted. It went from actually one founder to another founder, but David Sabatini, who's big and well-known in the mTOR field, uh, was making all of this progress um, in terms of identifying novel targets and interactions in the and, and, and defining that the mTORC pathway, mTORC1 pathway was really the way to go. So the relationship that he had with a bunch of the, uh, the, the VCs that were in the original company, including me, uh, had a lot to do with us bringing him into the fold and allowing the company to, to pivot. So relationships with VCs and, and, um, and that kind of visibility is, is very useful. Yeah. And we, we try to create relationships with these lab heads. Now, of course, it's, you know, with David, something like David Sabatini, it's a little bit easier if you're in his lab because he has all these natural networks and connections. If, you know, so it's, I guess it's not always so easy if you're not in, you know, if you're in some different lab, but I would say create a symposium and present your work. Um, in, I'm sorry. Did, nope. Okay. So in, we're gonna. I'm gonna ask a couple more questions about um, jobs within the industry, and then we'll open it up to a little bit of Q and A from the audience. Um, I know some folks uh, sent in questions or stopped me beforehand, so we'll come back to that. Um, you mentioned earlier. I think this was Bob. Um, you mentioned earlier that as the kinds of technological advances that are happening now that in, that might enable the whole next wave of blockbusters. Um, you mentioned things like sensors and optics. Increasingly, these are leveraging skill sets in engineering, mm -hmm. um, not in the sort of traditional biology and chemistry right. where biopharma might play. So even if you're not a device company, you might be starting to find that there's a, that you need to beef up the talent pipeline in fields where you haven't gone shopping before. Um, so I guess, first of all, any sense of what I'd love to, I'm guessing the audience would love to hear a little bit more about what are some of those fields? Like what kind of technical disciplines are you finding are often being married with life sciences in new ways that are challenges for you? Um, and then if we have folks, you know, here in the room who are interested in joining the firms, like how do people get jobs in the industry? So let's start with the job piece first. Uh, for us, um, obviously, there's a, a website where you can go J&J Jobs to, and what I would say is be really open-minded in terms of looking at the descriptions um, because you don't necessarily have a feel for what those roles are. And if there's any, um, you know, any possibility for you to be interested, let's say, getting in from a regulatory perspective because they need technical folks or medical writing or other areas. Uh, it, it might be something that you might want, even project management, bench science. There, there, but you're gonna need to leverage what you do now, 
what you do well to get in. So for example, if you're saying, uh, I get a lot of people saying I'm a postdoc, I want to become a VC. It's like, okay, well, you're going to have to, you know, that, that's not, that, that's a little bit far. You're going to need to have a journey there, right? What's your journey going to be? And I think, um, and, and trying to sort of get in to a job that is leveraging what your current strengths are. Like, even if you're at the bench, you don't want to be at the bench. You're going to have to spend time at the bench to get into a company because that's what you can do. So that's, those are some ideas I have. The other, my, what I also always tell people is, my career has always been in three to five year modules, okay? You're never gonna, if you say uh, you're a PhD and you wanna be a VC, you're not gonna be a VC for 40 years. You're just gonna be bored to tears, right? So you have to think, how can I get there and have fun doing it? So that's my advice on, on that one. And your first question was? First question was, oh, where, where are the technical oh, yeah. areas? Informatics are... is a huge one. I mean, you know, as you were saying, big data. Uh, there's, uh, I, I think there's, uh, Way, uh, the whole notion of then how do you convert um, wearables into information. So actually, I have a friend that just joined Verily, which is the Google Life Science Group, and they're doing this whole redo of the, the Framingham study, sort of not redo, but 10,000 patients that they're collecting all these analytics. So this whole notion about the, the you know, from, from uh, devices that collect to information to then how you convert that to knowledge and what the heck you do with it, that's, that's what's new and we haven't figured that out. So if you can figure out how to fit in that continuum, I think that would be hugely useful. Yeah, I would agree. Yeah, data interpretation um, is, is a, you know, a huge area that we struggle with how to actually you know, contain it and, 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 and develop our own approaches. Uh, so we need help. Uh, material science is another area um, where you know, the, a lot of the work actually blends into um, pharmaceutical drug discovery, especially around delivery. So. You know, there's a lot of great biology and a lot of great chemicals that just can't get delivered to the target. And, right. and uh, so delivery is actually a, a spot that we mm -hmm. try to reach out beyond yeah. our own boundaries. Um, so that's and, and I would add, you know, there's also uh, an interest I know at Novartis around, you know, doing better clinical studies. They're really, really expensive. You know, there's a ton of apps that are being done on the phone. People are trying to figure out, you know, how do I select the right patients so that I can run a smaller study, get a you know, a bigger impact, and then figure out even when I'm commercial, how I close the loop so that I can demonstrate that not only my drug works, but it works in this population, and I can demonstrate it real world for, for the payers who are, you know, applying more pressure to see real world outcomes. So there's that, and then I would also say sensor technology. Mm -hmm. um, you know, so that we understand the patient well before they crash and end up in the hospital. You know, whether it be wearables or implantables or other technologies. That's that measuring. Anything that can help us Anything, measure. Yes. Yeah. And is that true for both hiring talent and also investing in opportunities? Like, uh, do, are you looking for companies in those spaces? For Novartis, I would say it's more external. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I think that's part of the challenge. Yeah. If, I mean, most of the device companies spun out of pharma companies, if you yeah. look at, you know, years ago. And part of it is because culturally they're so different. And so I think they're a little hesitant to, to bring them back in because they realize culturally it's not going to work. So there's more you know, uh, relationships that are partnerships than they are kind of internalizing. Right. And now it's the same thing. So from our perspective, in terms of hiring, we have two core um, um, missions that kind of drive how we differentiate ourselves. One is understanding deep kind of what we call depth and breadth of understanding of molecular biology. So if you're a molecular biologist, you, that's the, that's your path into our company. Is mm -hmm. that's what I'm saying. Take, yes, take what yeah. you do well, right, right. and that's how you get exactly. in. Exactly. And the second one is actually integrating 
our, um, our, our diagnostics, our sequencing, our, our PCR business, and our tissue diagnostics business into our pharmaceutical research and early development. So again, if you are, have an expertise that lends itself to that kind of diagnostics R&D, that's another path into our company. And last question, I'm sorry. Oh yeah, one other comment is um, consulting is also another interesting way for folks that have technical knowledge. I mean, it's a tough life, only because I know how quickly they turn around when we hire them. But you know, folks like McKinsey and others um, are looking for folks to help with all kinds of analysts and, and, and technical input. And a lot of the folks um, who have gone through those types of jobs are like high, highly desirable and have really been, uh, had a wonderful and rich experience to be able to go into other roles. So that's also something that you could do, uh, you know, earlier on in your career. We, um, as a former consultant, I appreciate that there was some value. I also echo the very, very hard life. <laughs> I see, I knew, I knew both uh, of those, right? Seven years of the Boston Consulting Group before coming here. Um, uh, we run, uh, I see that there's some of our fellows, the CTV fellows in the audience. Um, so we run a fellows program for graduate students. We have what, 30, 33, some odd, 40 now students um, who work with us part time to get some training in this stuff. Uh, uh, do you have any, uh, just parting advice to the students in the room, which I think was about half the audience, on things they could be doing while they are still in school to prepare themselves mm -hmm. for a career in the field? You know, raise your hand, you know, jump into anything that's exciting and cool and seems to be innovative and entrepreneurial. Just get as much experience as you possibly can and just say, can I help? I agree. There's so much opportunity in this city. There's so much opportunity to just participate, help out, whether it's an industry sponsor, helping out EDC on something, New York mm -hmm. Economic Development Commission, on something they want to do, or help another, help somebody, one of your entrepreneurs, friends in, in the room, just help. Even yeah. if it's a company yeah. that ends up being a complete and total disaster, or a project that fails miserably, you know how much you learn from that? Yeah. I mean, you, know, you just have to see it. You have to see as much of it as you possibly can. And I'd say also network. And so when I say network, I don't mean do a cold LinkedIn message to somebody you don't know, because they're not going to answer. I'm saying through your friends and family. So it might be your aunt's neighbor who's in farm. I mean, I've done calls for some of my friends, sons, best friend, whatever, and I'll take that call because I have that relationship and I'll give them advice. So I would say do your you know, extended network and tell, tell all your friends and family if they know anyone in farm or whatever to try and connect you because I think the, 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 the personal interaction is really, really important. And one of the things you can hear from our group is we're all kind of mutts. We all kind of came here from a different path. So we take those calls because we got the lucky break. Someone actually listened to us. Someone actually was willing to take an informational interview. Right? I mean, it's don't be shy. You know, we're not such terrible, weird, you know, distant people. We all were you and we had to figure out our path and we were lucky that a couple people along the way listened. Actually, just to point out two folks in the room, because these, 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 uh, our, our panels will go back to their day jobs in, in some cases in other cities. Uh, we have two of CTV's executives and residents in the room, so I just want to introduce them. So uh, Linda Dujac, maybe just raise your hand. That's Linda. Uh, she's on campus for this semester uh, quite often, comes from a career in J&J &J and at the FDA, and so could be a good source of advice. And Arika Moses, sitting, there's Arika, um, sitting next to her, a serial entrepreneur uh, in the devices and surgical tool space. So if you are looking for some advice, you can check out the CTV 
website, techventures.columbia.edu, to learn more about the Executives in Residence program. Um, I'm going to open it up to a few questions. The request I'll make is, um, and actually, like, he caught my eye earlier, so I'm just going to start with him, and then I'll come to you. Um, make sure your question's a real question. Um, so <laughs> it should be a question you're asking of the panelists, not something you're telling them. Um, and secondly, if you can explain your name, just say your name and, you know, are you a student? Are you a faculty member? Are you at a company? Um, and I'll try and repeat the question for posterity. And stand up. So I'm going to just repeat the question. Uh, the, 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 I'll try and summarize it. Um, there's a very common, the commonly so-called valley of death or ditch of despair or any number of other pessimistic uh, terms, but describing that gap between the super early cutting edge research that's largely unvalidated coming out of the universities, those raw eureka moments, and the comfort level of the big biopharma companies, typically, not always, in terms of getting involved. and so. Uh, any suggestions on how best to bridge that gap in those earliest, most raw years? I okay. So the next no. question. No, no, because I, I I hear where you're coming from. For so I'm thinking systems biology, and in my head, that would be more collaborative than it would be an investment, right? Because in other words, the guys I know within R and D are going to say. I have a problem I can't solve. I would love to go to the outside. But that doesn't mean that we would invest in your company to make it, uh, to, to, to form it into, to get it to that stage where the R&D folks are solving a specific problem. So I think the notion, um, what I would do is, because I think when you're that early, we're not going to sort of help big company. What I think you need to do is be really uh, tenacious and figure out how to go from pharma to pharma and understand what is the biggest, most common systems biology problem that they haven't solved, right? Because it's not going to be a company if it's purely just, you know, a service or if it's something that um, that makes something, uh, you know, easier or faster. It has to be something that is not solved today. So you have to figure out what is the problem that all pharmas have that, you, and then figure out. How, how to fix it. And that's, that's sort of the model for many of these large venture firms like the Third Rocks and the, mm -hmm. and the flagships. If you, if you don't have the problem and that's where you have to work on that on your own, uh, 
then we're not going to be interested. If you identify the problem and you even have a concept about the solution and it's that game changing, then we might even listen to it. But that's what I would suggest to do. It's uh, that, I mean, that's that, that, uh, if that's helpful. Yeah, I was, I mean, I'll echo some of the similar things. You have to know the problem. I bet you if I really had the conversation with you and said, you know, what would I fund? You could tell me what you'd fund for the next 12 months, but may not be able to answer what you want to be in five years. And so for folks like us, we really need to see the path which gets to where's the problem, how you apply your solution, and how you get to where you are. But there was another question embedded in your uh, question, which was corporate VC versus private VC, right? And um, it's a really small community, especially in the life sciences world. We all invest together. All three of our groups have invested together, in some cases, the same exact company. Um, and we all invest with, you know, uh, private VCs too, and I've been on, a, on the private VC side. So it's less uh, problematic than you think, and they aren't all that different. Um, so, you know, part of it is just finding the fund that is interested in what you do, that you have the right fit and the right profile and the right stage. Right. And I would say that we, you know, we all offer many different approaches for you to take advantage of if you want to or not. And not every approach that you're going to see is right for you personally. So some people want to build a company. Some people don't want to build a company. Right? Right. Uh, and so um, you know, I think you also it's important to take account of what you actually want to do and how you want to interface with, with the world around you, whether that's a, uh, if you want to go build a company, then yeah, you should be talking to the venture capital firms. If you want to actually work on sponsored research, and then you should be talking directly to the pharma company. So it kind of depends right. on what you want to do also. It's also, I, I, the sad reality of it, at least until the last couple of years, was rarely did the technology innovators at our stage of technology have that choice to make. Um, we'd be thrilled, historically, to work with the seed funds, the angel funds, the private VCs, the strategic investors, a license, a sponsored research agreement, really anything to get the technology out into the world. And it's only in the last couple of years that we've had to, even at, at Columbia Technology Ventures, figure out what do you do when there's multiple parties who want the same technology? We literally had a meeting on that just last two weeks ago to say, oh, we've never been in this situation before. And I, and, and I think it requires a very personal decision because building a company, it sounds very glamorous. It's really it's hard, hard work. Hard. It's really, really hard. And you have to take personal risk. So uh, it's, you know, it's not for everybody. Yeah, makes sense. Yeah. Great. Um, I'm Rana Qureshi, and I'm director of New Ventures at the University of Maryland, and we have a new initiative, which, um, but I'm also a Columbia undergrad, and my PhD is like a biochemistry here, so, but, so what I'm seeing actually from what this gentleman said, and also what we are seeing and what we're trying to resolve is that there's two aspects to the so-called valley of death. One is the really sort of very early stage research, moving it forward to a point where it at least becomes conceptually commercializable. But mm -hmm. then when you have like very simple examples where you have like drugs, uh, things that just need the IND work done. So it's like two million, four million, max six million of dollars that you need. But most of pharma, and a lot of these VC pools and the, the funds that are available that will invest over the next few years are not gonna be able to identify because they don't have this you know, there's not that many people out there. So I very strongly feel that the academic institutions need to actually put their money a little bit where their mouth is in collaboration with the state. Um, and I'm hoping that, you know, pharma would somehow get a little bit behind this. I know that pharma was not 
very supportive of a lot of the earlier stuff that happened in the late, um, you know, what the turn of the century, which they were trying to do with the NIH, where they were trying to convert, you know, create real valley of death bridges within NIH because it was, as a federal thing, it was perceived as socialism. And, and that was like not very good. Um, but at the state level, I think it can be done. And I think you see an example of that at state and city levels in New York City, because I was also with the New York City Partnership mm -hmm. and did that first big study on biotech. And now I'm like slowly, I've been watching this ecosystem very carefully and been very involved in it and seeing it, it grow as a result. And, and to some extent, uh, and uh, no offense, Lauren, but the universities have been kind of pulled kicking and dragging into it because you know, their focus is more on licensing as opposed to actually launching new companies in the city. So it's the EDC, New York City EDC, that does eLab, that does, you know, is trying to do this 150 million fund. And all of this is very difficult, but I, I was hoping that you might have some comments on how pharma um, might move toward that level, which is a little less sort of uh, intrusive than, say, a federal kind of an approach that would help to bridge these two aspects of the valley of death. Sure, actually, but just, I'm gonna take moderator privilege for one second. So just to take issue with one thing you said, okay. not offense, but uh, to, for, the, for the audience, you, the universities, whether it's Columbia or uh, Rockefeller or Cornell or NYU, just the local ones, um, that may have been true 10 years yeah. ago. I actually don't believe it is true anymore at all. I don't, um, yeah, I don't the universities that. across the board have put tremendous resources behind trying to uh, help entrepreneurs grow their companies. Now, and the tech transfer office may not be the site of that, um, but between the, the, the various programs, um, whether it's uh, the Coulter program run here at Columbia for medical devices, where you connect medical device uh, uh, clinicians with engineers to go through a lean launchpad style boot camp with $150,000 of validation money, the mentors that are all on campus, these lectures. I think what you'll find is, if you go to entrepreneurship.columbia.edu, there's a whole host of resources available for entrepreneurs. And NYU has the same, and Harvard has the same. So, yeah, but those aren't working well, and that's the problem. That's as serious as it is. OK, I'm going to take your word for that. Yeah. Uh, in the meantime, <laughs> if we could, <laughs> I mean, the 27 companies that came out last year in these $40 million Series A investments may point in the opposite direction. But I'll, anyway, the, the question was, um, how do the big pharma companies, uh, um, is there a role for you to play with the city and the state and the federal government in encouraging entrepreneurship and innovation? Yeah, I'll take a shot at it just for discussion. You know, for those of you who were subjected to me last night at the culture event, um, you know, we talked about needs assessments and, 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 and unmet clinical need. You know, if you listen to the discussion here, you know, we're solving problems. We have problems to solve, and, and, and other ones we don't want to solve, right? I mean, if you don't want to do you know, ovarian cancer, you're not going to convince anybody to spend any time on ovarian mm -hmm. cancer. But if you find something in lung, let me know. Researchers have, you know, they're finding really cool science in search of a problem, okay? And sometimes problem solvers and people in search of a problem line up perfectly, and Series A's come together, and sometimes they don't, because you might need to package it. You might need a little bit of money to incubate it a little bit further. You might need some, a management person who can distill it in a way that you couldn't do otherwise. And so I don't think you can ask a commercial entity to say we should subsidize those types of efforts. We're certainly going to do it in areas that are of interest to us. And I think universities should spend a little bit of time, you know, like they do with Coulter and other things to do it in their way. But I worry that if you try to 
make it a government entity, as an example, or try and you know institutionalize it too much, it, it's not necessarily perfect. But I and I also would agree that I don't think it's as bad as you think it is. Uh, I you know there's an awful lot of technologies that we see that get incubated in many many different ways through many many different functions, and I think the pharma companies have a role, and we express our role, but we do it in ways that fit our business model too. I agree. Um, so um, we have a certain commitment we've made, for example, in, within New York City, we've made a certain commitment to be part of the discussion and part of the conversation about how, do, how, do we, how does New York build a biotech community. That's mostly through spending people's time on mm -hmm. things. So for example, helping out with New York Partnership Fund or helping out with EDC or helping out with eLabs. What we're not going to do is we're not going to make large infrastructure investments into infrastructure that's not our own infrastructure. Right. So it's just it's we can't do that. We have our, that that all, all that money comes for our R and D money, and we need to invest our R and D into our projects, whether they're internal or licensed in, and that's going to be our priority. Yeah, I similarly, I think that if there we prefer to do sort of direct <coughs> investing into things that we have of interest, but we also do our part. As much as we can to support the just the innovation ecosystem. Yes. Um, so, I think we have time for one more question. And oh, wow! Well, and okay. let me just one one other. Let me just one quick. Just the fact that Novartis has a seven hundred and fifty million dollar fund that's not strategic, right? Where twenty percent of our effort is focused on early stage company formation, tells you something. It does, but I guess the great the point is that the amount of scientific innovation that's going on relative to the actual percentage increase in funding available, there's a mismatch. There really is. And so whether you start 27 companies and you could have started, it's the opportunity cost that you're not identifying okay. in any of this. Okay. That's all I'm saying. So and that's where I feel the universities have to come up with some funding, the cities have to come up with some funding, and pharma then, I'm not asking, I'm not suggesting that pharma come up with some funding, all I'm suggesting is that that might be a better workable model because you will see more product that is more creative and innovative. That's all. Um, I, so, you, you guys okay on time for like another yeah, 10 minutes? I'm good. Or something? Yeah. Okay, so maybe we'll try. There were a lot of hands that went up. So, I'm going to start here. Um, yeah, sure. Um, I'm Greg Regano. I have a business background, uh, graduated law school, I'm a practicing attorney, and currently pursuing my master's at Johns Hopkins. And what I do is we incubate um, maybe not even a company, just a scientist to get their technology to the next level, proper exit strategy, perhaps a phase two. Um, and piggybacking on what you said, there's an unlimited amount of scientists out there with tremendous research. Uh, major problem I see coming across my desk is most scientists really have a tremendous lack of understanding about intellectual property and patents, and they are in a rush to publish because they all want their information out there, they all want funding. But when that one-year window ends, it really could have created a serious problem for them as far as their intellectual property strategy. And this is a problem I often come across, and I wanted to know your thoughts, including Columbia's thought, how, how do you kind of go about this, but more specifically, if you see a technology that has tremendous ability, and you, you know, maybe groundbreaking, game-changing technology, but it's been published, and the intellectual property strategy may not necessarily be there, is it something that you would look into, or are you saying, you know, let someone else try it? So, so I'll repeat the question. I'm actually going to add on to that because I think it's a great question. Um, essentially, uh, how important is the intellectual property protection in the opportunities that you either invest in or in license? Um, whether there is any at all, how strong the patent is independent of the science. And I'm going to tack on to that. 
How important is global patent protection versus just patent protection in the US? If you find something that's a great idea but only has a US patent, is it something you'll still look at these days? You know, on a scale of one to 10, it's probably a nine, right? And global um, is important. Yeah, and global is important. We're all global companies, and if you only can commercialize in half the world, then, it, then half the value is lost. And if you messed up and it's in the public domain, then there's no value. I mean, obviously no value, but we would analyze it. But there has to be some way that we can have exclusivity. So in other words, in some instances, um, if, if it's a, for example, if it's a biologic, it might be 10 years of, you know, exclusivity, biologic exclusivity, in which case, you know, there are ways that we can, we, we can, we can try and try and try. But if there is no exclusivity, it just, it, it impacts the, the uh, the commercial the financial modeling of the value of the asset. Right. So it's the three to seven years that the FDA would grant for so, therapy. That's not enough. So it has to be kind of. Uh, oh, it depends on. Chances are not. It depends on the peak year sales and the competition and all those kinds of things. So and it's if possible. It's a biologic or small molecule, and is it you know you, are you going to have other IP? Right. I think it's hard the to IP make, attorney. I think it's hard to make a business case with less than and yeah. general rule, less it, than general about ten rule. years. Yeah. Um, so yeah, IP is the foundation of our business because of the model we work within, right? Mm -hmm. The business model we work within requires you have to have intellectual property. Um, I think for us, it comes back to what are we selling? We're selling a pharmaceutical product. There has to be IP on the compound or the molecule we're selling, or we won't look at it. Now, there's other IP, right? There's other types of IP. There's no, there's no how. how around targets. There might be, you know, uh, that's also IP, right? And so that might be something we have to tap into, and we want to tap into through some type of relationship just as important, or but it's a different type of model. Right, depending on what we publish, if the composition of matter, in other words, if you create a, if the drug is actually a, a different one, but it's, you know, you, you it was just a lead that you published, then composition of matter is another way of protecting. Yeah, and actually you asked earlier, how do universities, to broaden it out, how do universities deal with this? Uh, there's a common misperception that you can either publish or patent, you know, give talks or patent. We encourage the researchers here at Columbia to come talk to us as early as they can because we can file a provisional patent on a very fast turnaround, and often do, um, before someone submits the, the, you know, the grant application that shows everything that they do. Or, uh, and, and it doesn't stop them at all um, from going off and trying to get the, the mainstay of universities. Universities aren't here to file patents and to license things. Universities are here to push the boundaries of knowledge and to have people give talks and publish things and train students and have them get jobs and interact with industry and with the rest of the world. Um, so you know, most university tech transfer offices have adapted to be able to be flexible and fast to try and get the patents on file. Um, it's very interesting to hear the panel's view on the importance of intellectual property. Because what you've seen over the last, I'm sure you followed this, you sound, you're, you're an attorney, but there's been a, a huge debate raging in Congress um, about whether you know, patents are evil or patents are good. And in many ways, what you see from, the, from who's coming out on each side of that lobbying debate is uh, that companies that are long cycle time, high capex investment to get something to market that have relatively few hits for everything that starts the pipeline. Without the patents, you said a billion dollars to get a drug to market. Yeah, why would two billion dollars to get a drug to market? Who's going to do that if the second you get the drug to market, you're subject to generics? You almost, um, if you don't patent your technology, you almost guarantee that it will never be translated. In this field. 
In this field. In this field. Because no one will invest if it's in the public domain. Right. So, so you almost squander it, and to some extent, you ruin it for everybody else. So to do yourself a disservice. No one will do it, right? No one will do it, right? So it, you, know, it's, it, you, you really shoot yourself in the foot. Right. Whereas, I mean, like in other fields, if it's, a, if it's something like consumer digital software, things like that, no it, you could have a philosophical argument either way. Sometimes it's important, sometimes it's not. In this field. In life sciences. Yeah, yeah. Advanced materials, devices, therapeutics, yes. diagnostics, critical. Um, there's a gentleman in the back of the blue sweatshirt. <coughs> uh, hi, my name is Mike. Um, I was just curious how your individual companies feel about regenerative medicine and cell-based therapy, and maybe more importantly, if you guys invest in those companies. <laughs> great question, great question. I smell an entrepreneur. <laughs> <laughs> well, we just, oh. we just partnered one out of beta cells uh, for the treatment of diabetes. We, we sort of joined forces and put our technology into Viasite. So, so in that instance, it was an out, doesn't, but that means, but obviously we have done and are, have been interested in cell-based therapies. We actually have an ocular cell therapy for uh, dry AMD that we're going into full development with. So we, we, uh, we definitely have knowledge and experience and clearly believe there's a business model to cells, but that being said, we, we don't have a, a humongous franchise, but we do, we do have interest and I think it's all about is that the best way to uh, address an unmet need? So it's it's definitely something um, that we are sort of opportunistic about. Yeah, I mean, I think you know uh, everyone's keeping their eye on it as a venture fund. We you know we don't invest in R, we do invest in D. My sense is that tissue engineering is still in the R stage, um, and so if you have something that's more D stage, let me know. Uh, but it's. <laughs> It's hard because I think the other challenge that we're dealing with, you know, actually the device guys might be more interested in some cases than the pharma folks because it might be more suitable because often those things tend to be more procedural. Um, but I, ultimately, we'll also have to figure out how to get it paid for. And I think that's one of the other challenges in the field that, you know, our system hasn't figured that out yet. So cell therapy is a general rule. The answer is we've kind of shied away from it. However, there are a couple of exceptions. First of all, it, well, yes, no, Lawrence <laughs> Cartier, right? Yeah. So, yeah. so I mean, we, which we actually haven't done at Roche, um, mostly because we feel from the from the Cartier perspective, based upon what we've seen for in for future in vivo applications, so far we haven't seen an advantage of the cell therapy approach over what we think we can accomplish with an antibody approach, right? Mm -hmm. But we have we're keeping a very very close eye on that field because. But a complex supply chain, high cost of goods, all we those might things. There yeah. might be a tipping point comes where the technologies yeah. Yeah. will make us change our mind there. So we're keeping an eye on that field. And in fact, we did make an investment last year into a company called Squeeze, which actually is a cell therapy company, which is, a, it's kind of a cool device yeah. where you actually squeeze a cell through with this device and, and it, it opens up the porosity of the cell and allows you to touch other things. So, um, so, um, so, um, so that's yeah. The other area where we we again we haven't jumped in um, on uh, from a cell therapy approach, but we do believe in the concept of, of regenerative medicine that we can actually impact regenerative medicine through a more traditional approach with with small molecules, frankly. So, for example, for hearing loss, we actually do have a program that we're working on where we're trying to regenerate um, hair the, the, the hairs in the, the follicle, yeah. hair follicles through a chemical approach. And Novartis, in fact, is doing the same thing a with, the, approach, with a gene yeah. therapy approach. Yep, exactly. Right? So, yeah. So there are pockets. Yeah. Um, I'm going to take one more question. I will note if this is the, if you found today's conversation interesting, um, we have a, uh, these panel discussions fairly regularly. So if you're not on our mailing list, go to techventures.columbia.edu to sign up to get notifications about them. Um, there's a few online. Someone mentioned Flagship earlier. So Doug Cole from Flagship 
uh, was down here in December talking about flagship strategy to spend their new $700 million mm -hmm. fund that they raised just before the market started to yeah. wobble, uh, well-timed flagship. Um, so that video will be going up next week, uh, next week or two, hopefully, so just keep your eye open. One last question. Uh, this is kind of inspired by the CAR-T comment and is a future biotech question. So, of course, there are a few therapeutic areas in which the state is baking in a lot of future value, immuno-oncology being one of them. Could you guys comment on what other areas there may be and also how maybe each one of you kind of agrees or disagrees with that consensus view? So, uh, this is a predict-the-future question. Uh, immunotherapy clearly has made a lot of people a lot of money, even though it is not on the market yet. Um, oh, well, sorry, okay, right, yeah. fair enough. Uh, <laughs> even though the full potential has not been realized yet. Um, uh, what else is next? First of all, do you agree that immunotherapy is? Oh, yeah, totally, I mean, yes. it's okay. crazy. But the other two, I would just say, are microbiome and CRISPR. Yeah, I, I, well, I think gene, yeah, gene editing is interesting, right? Because from a therapeutic gene perspective, editing, yeah. Yeah, yeah, from a therapeutic perspective, I actually think that Neuroscience is 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 the next step of evolution. If I look at where oncology was 20 years ago, 15 years ago, I think neuroscience is in kind of a similar spot personally, and I think you're going to see that that's a good place to invest today. Yeah, I would agree, and I actually think that you know IO and, and you know CAR T and all that. I think that you know there's probably all these technologies have hype, bust, and rebirth, and so I think we're overhyped a little bit, and they won't probably live up to the promise today, but will absolutely live up to the promise longer term. Um, oncology, you know, oncology is always a good area because, you know, for folks like us, um, you can get paid for oncology if someone's, you know, you know, facing a life death situation, insurance companies pay too. So you tend to go to the most, you know, the most critical areas and that's where um, people spend their money. Thank you for listening. For more information on Columbia Technology Ventures, visit techventures.columbia.edu.